Welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. I am also the co-founder of Path 11 Productions. And aside from podcasting, we also make great films and documentaries, which can be found at path11productions.com. We have a special promo code just for our podcast listeners. The promo code is PATH11PODCAST, and if you go to our website, PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM, and visit our shop page, put that promo code in, and you will receive 50% off of our Evolution DVD, which is the third film in our PATH Trilogy series. If you would like to become a sponsor of the PATH11 Podcast, please email me at info at PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM. And now for this week's show. with Dr. Kavita Chinayan, who is a cardiologist at Balmont Health System and an associate professor of medicine at Oakland University, William Balmont School of Medicine. She was featured as one of the best doctors in America and has served on several national and international committees. Dr. Kavita has been a spokesperson for the American Heart Association and served as the co-chair of the Go Red for Women event sponsored by the AHA. She has also won several awards and grants for research in cardiology and was awarded the Secret of Truth Award for her research endeavors and appears often on local and national radio and television. She also gives invited talks on Ayurveda, medicine and spirituality, and yoga for heart disease. She has also created the Heal Your Heart, Free Your Soul Holistic Prevention Program and shares its teachings through weekend retreats, workshops, and intensive courses. Welcome, Dr. Kavita. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about your new book, The Heart of Wellness, Bridging Western and Eastern Medicine to Transform Your Relationships with Habits, Lifestyle, and Health, and we're also going to be teaching our listeners a little bit about your bliss prescription, so I'm really excited uh-huh. to have this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I know that our listeners really love it when we introduce them to doctors who really are bridging Western and Eastern medicine and listening to their patients. And I'd like you to explain to our listeners what happened to you about 10 years ago when you kind of came to a turning point in, in your career and, um, you know, internally with your spiritual belief systems and what was going on with all that you've learned through medicine. Yeah, um so um you know everything uh that that um that happened on that you know since then has been really a, you know my own personal uh life being transformed and and as a result my medical tra- uh, practice being transformed as well so um you know my my life is like anybody else's where we are constantly on the go and getting to the next, to the next, to the next uh, goal. And, um, you know, I think something that pretty much all of us can relate to, which is we we just go from one thing to another to another. It's like, uh, okay, now I'm in school. I need to get through this, then get the job, then, you know, get into a relationship, get married, have children. If that's our path, not everybody does. But regardless... Uh, we're always kind of on the go, you know, getting to the next, to the next, and to the next thing. And um, that had been my story. I was very ambitious and uh, very uh, focused and driven. And what 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 occurred to me was at that time is 
why am I not happy when I get what I want? You know, it's one thing to be ambitious and to seek something, and when you get what you are seeking, you should find permanent happiness, right? But why isn't it that, uh, you know, that, whatever I have achieved so far is causing me permanent happiness where I'm not going after the next thing. And um, so the revelation that came out of that inquiry was that ultimately I was seeking the end of searching, the end of seeking. And this is, when you think about it, that's what all of us are seeking. You know, when we are set on our goal of achieving something, we're thinking that will be it. You know, once I have that, then my life will be set and I won't have to look for something else again. And so we are always seeking, actually, the end of seeking, but we're looking in the wrong place by, um, you know, going after all kinds of external objects. Um, and objects in this case could mean physical objects or objects that, uh, that are more subtle like relationships or fame or notoriety or recognition or whatever you, uh, you know, you can add in to that um, whole issue of uh, objects. So, um, after that, you know, it, it, it just, it wasn't like, okay, that's that, and uh, there was no, um, nothing that came after that. That just led me on this very deep um, look into my own life and to my beliefs and my um, life in general, and, and then finally my medical practice and thinking, how can you possibly address disease if you don't address the fundamental thing that drives humans? So that's really how this whole thing came about. Yeah, and um, how are you able to bridge that with the Western medicine and the Eastern medicine philosophies? Because I think you also talk about in Western medicine it's more cause and effect, but in Ayurvedic medicine, for example, it's kind of looking at the body and the spirit and the mind as a whole to treat what's going on. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is you know, something that I found to be missing in modern medicine. And the thing is, I really, you know, this is what I'm trained in, and I uh, do think the world of the improvements in technology and uh, the availability of um, superior medications and procedures and so on. But what we lack here is, is integrating every part of who we are into our model of health as well as disease. It's like, you know, we just kind of discount. I mean, most of us don't even ask our patients, you know, what's your life like? You know, what's going on with your life, with your job, with your family, with your... Could, is there any possibility that all of that could be affecting your health and your disease and, and this whole process of disease? We just kind of just let that go. And only in the last 10 years or so, there has been more and more research looking at the effect of various things in our lives on the body and on, uh, for instance, heart disease. And uh, so there is increasing recognition in Western medicine of the things that, you know, Ayurveda and other Eastern traditions have been saying for thousands of years. 
And would you say that maybe like 10 or 20 years ago, Western medicine wasn't as willing to begin to open to some of these other ideas and concepts? Because I still... I still find from, you know, hearing clients' stories and uh, families' experiences that sometimes Western medicine isn't always willing to embrace some Eastern philosophies. Yeah, and I would totally agree with that. You know, it's uh, because it takes a fundamental shift in, uh, you know, how physicians think and how we've been trained. And, you know, in the book I say, you know, I talk about this concept of bliss, which is like the fundamental definition of health in Ayurveda. But that word is is almost ridiculed in Western medicine, never came up in my training, never comes up in, you know, day-to-day practice. In fact, people just kind of snicker and... Um, you don't have this contempt for things like this as being uh, not important or being, uh, you know, soft and not having enough evidence in research. And and the problem with, uh, you know, our thinking like this in Western medicine, in our, our current way of thinking is, we are so focused on evidence-based medicine, which is fabulous. We do need evidence-based medicine. Is that some of these things simply cannot uh, be revealed in randomized controlled trials, and that is where the problems arise. Because when you mention things like this to uh, somebody um, who is very in tune with Western medicine, they'll ask you, "Where's the evidence?" And there is no definitive evidence because you can't measure it. You can't, there are no objective measures of things like compassion and gratitude and wellness and sweetness and a change in perception. How do you measure that? There is no objective measure for those things. And that's why those things are considered soft and not important, when actually they are the fundamental basis for how we feel and how we think and how we live and how we treat ourselves and everybody around us. And um, before we get into the book, I'm just curious to know, you know, because I would say that you're probably one of the pioneers in 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 this movement of really blending Eastern and Western medicine, and how is it accepted amongst your peers out in Michigan and just in the medical community? It, uh, it's it's uh, very interesting, you know, because I um, it, it, it was really hard for me uh, initially, primarily because this was something self-imposed. Uh, first of all, you know, card- cardiology is a very male-dominated profession. And there are very few women that's changing gradually, but in general, there are very few women compared to men in our field. And on top of that, you know, we are expected to think like men and and behave like that. And it's a very... um, you know, it's a very type A kind of a profession, if you know what I mean. And uh, and then to bring up something like this, particularly being a woman and, and having my background, um, it was, I had a lot of inhibitions myself. But surprisingly, that's 
that that really turned out to be my own self-imposed issues because my colleagues and my partners um, you know whether or not they prescribe to my philosophy they're very supportive and my institution has been very supportive of uh, the kinds of things I want to do uh, in my medical practice um, again whether or not they believe in it or whether or not they prescribe to it whether or not they are going to recommend it to their patients they're okay with with me doing uh, what I want to do so um, and that's that's been very very helpful and I'm sure your client's success in, in health and recovery will just speak for itself, and that might even raise a couple of our eyebrows to say, hmm, maybe what she's doing is working. Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what's happened, you know, in my practice over the last 10 years. Um, you know, I've quietly done my work and uh, continued with my teaching and my workshops and events and so on, never really imposing it on anybody else, but now... I do have quite a few colleagues who refer their patients to me for specific um, Ayurvedic advice and for lifestyle advice and so on. So uh, the, it's, the tide is shifting, but very gradually. <laughs> yes. Now, I'd like to educate our listeners a little bit more about the Ayurvedic medicine and the different doshas. And also in your book, you talk about the three different bodies that are powered by bliss. So I mean, if you could just give a small introduction to how you treat using the Ayurvedic uh, philosophy and how different bodies, different personalities kind of hold different structures within their doshas, what they look like. Um, so our listeners can maybe identify, oh, maybe I'm Vada or maybe I'm the, I think it's pronounced Pitta or Pitta. Pitta. Yes, the Pitta Dosha, and I know that there's another Dosha as well. So if you could just review those for our listeners, that would be great. Yeah, um, so, you know, it's, uh, at the, right at the outset, I want to mention that this book is not really about Ayurveda because I really don't go too much into body typing and so on. Uh, it's really using the general principles of one uh, particular the fundamental issue in Ayurvedic medicine, which is Agni. And so that is really what I'm using in the book, uh, which is the digestive fire or the fire of digestion of not just food, but of the senses and of memories and our, every aspect of our lives. So, um, but there are three doshas and uh, it's, Right at the right at the beginning, you know, we should clarify what do we even mean by doshas. Dosha literally means fault, and or a flaw, and so why would why why would that make sense? So if for it to make sense, we have to think about you know the um, the basic principle of Ayurveda, which begins with um, where does life originate, and so it originates the the fundamental or the basic principle of life is consciousness and life originates from consciousness we arise from consciousness so from the consciousness arise the three um, you know the three universal properties and they're called gunas and um, so everything you see in nature has a combination of the three gunas which is um, 
you know, one is of stability, one is of movement, and the other um, is of intelligence. So everything has these three gunas in various combinations. And from those three gunas, the five elements arise. And then these five elements, um, they combine in specific proportions to form doshas. So when we say dosha, that means it's a flaw it's a flaw because it is a part of the whole and it's always seeking wholeness. So that's why it's called a flaw or a dosha. And um, so there are three doshas and vata, for instance, is called the king dosha because it is the um, principle of movement. So if you think about life, life is defined by movement. And uh, when there is no movement, you know, then, then, it, then death is defined by lack of movement, which is movement in every single aspect. So the movement of thoughts, the movement of the digestive system, the movement of the heartbeat, the movement of the breath, um, the movement of the enzymatic reactions, so the uh, hormonal release and so on. So that's why it's called the king dosha. And then you have pitta, which is the principle of digestion or, uh, you know, um, transformation. So pitta is what changes one thing to another. So the weather changing from, you know, from winter to spring. So that change in one thing to another is pitta. So it's what changes or what facilitates the change of the food we eat into our own cells by, you know, in by the time the digestive process is complete. So pitta is the principle of transformation, and kapha is the principle of structure. So it is what gives um, structure to the cells, to the, and it, it has fluid in it, so it gives that stability and structure. So all of us have a combination of doshas, um, and uh, there are various quizzes online where you can figure out what your uh, specific uh, dosha is um, based on, you know, uh, your own constitution of how you uh, how your body and the mind work, and um, so the doshas that uh, you know we are born with are kind of constant, and and then. They, when they go, go out of balance, that's when the disease process begins. So the imbalanced dosha begins to accumulate and then move into specific areas, and that's how the whole disease process uh, is explained in Ayurveda. Is that making sense? Yeah, it is. And that's about as far as in some of my research that, you know, I've done specifically in trying to figure out my whole body nutrition system. Um, you know, I've, I've been able to get a lot of that information. But what I really liked about your book was what you were talking about right before you got into describing that, which is called, I think you pronounced it the Agni? Yes. The Agni. Yeah, and I was that. Yeah, I've never heard about that before. And when I was reading, I'm kind of jumping ahead. This is in Chapter 9, um, where you talk a lot about the imbalance of it and how that can be connected to disease. And, you know, throughout your book, you're also giving ways and how to rebalance that. Um, but I had never heard of this term or an imbalance in it. And I was wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit more uh, to explain in depth what the agony is. Yeah, so Agni literally means uh, fire, and um, 
and and fire, you know, or heat is um, is what um, uh, you know drives the transformation of everything that goes on in the body. So it's very closely connected with pitta. But um, importantly, you know, when we think about Agni, we're talking about the digestive fire. But when we say digestive fire, most people are thinking, you know, the digestion of food. That's only one part of Agni. But there is a greater part of Agni, which is, it's almost like the principle of life itself. Because if our Agni is not strong, it's not balanced, that's when we have problems where, you know, things that happened 30 years ago are still affecting us. And we're still hanging on to stuff and, you know, emotional stuff. And we haven't been able to process and and kind of uh, let the past go. We aren't able to process our, um, you know, sensory perception in a holistic way. And that's when our thinking and our cognition and our uh, reasoning, everything becomes clouded when the Agni is out of balance. So it's not just the digestive fire, but it's actually the digestive uh, fire of the cells and of the brain and of the subtle body, all of it. So um, bringing the Agni back into balance is um, not just getting the digestion, uh, you know, back into balance because uh, that is really what a lot of people uh, focus on, rightfully so, because most of the diseases start with um, with a weak digestion. But in Ayurveda, the concept of digestion is taken many, many steps further, and. We work not only on the physical body, but we also work on our minds and the subtle body, which uh, the subtle body is where, um, you know, these uh, sensory perceptions uh, occur, where the mind lives and where the energy or the prana um, moves. So that is the sensory, uh, or I'm sorry, the subtle body is where the life's intelligence intelligence flows where the body knows what to do and that kind of intelligence is actually um, something that resides in the subtle body so we work directly on the subtle body as well as working with the digestion um, of the physical body by uh, you know eating in certain ways and changing our lifestyle and so on Great. Thank you for that explanation. Um, another thing that was new to me that I learned in your book, and it was in Chapter 5, The Pathways of the Mind-Body Connection, were neurohormonal pathways. I've, I've heard of uh, neural pathways before, um, you know, different ways to kind of change that with the neuroplasticity in the brain. But can you describe a little bit more about what neurohormonal pathways are? Uh, sure. You know, that was a, that's a term that I made up. Uh, and um, what it's referring to is that the, the specific pathways in which the nerves or the neural cells or the nerve cells fire, they influence the hormones, uh, the release of certain hormones, and, and then these hormones act on... Uh, you know, our organs and the body. So everything that you can possibly think of is governed by these neurohormonal pathways. So 
you know, whether we are looking at something or we are thinking about something or we are um, speaking or we are actually um, listening to something, uh, whatever you can think of that we are doing on a day-to-day from a moment-to-moment basis is determined by these neurohormonal pathways and in the body, in the physical body. So how we think is influenced by the neurohormonal pathways and our thinking influences those uh, pathways. So it's, it's like a bi-directional thing. So this is why, you know, for instance, there is this, um, uh, a great example of this is an entity known as stress cardiomyopathy, which um, was described only in the last decade or so. And uh, what happens in this particular disease is that um, people come in with, uh, some, with symptoms of a heart attack, and we take them to the cath lab, and we do an angiogram, and turns out their arteries are fine. It's not really a blockage causing that. And so research has shown that these symptoms, and the heart actually becomes weak temporarily, and this is caused by a sudden surge of certain hormones in the body caused by stress some emotional stress, Um, or it can be physical stress that was sudden and the person was unable to deal with it. Now see how the Agni plays into that? Um, It's lack of adequate processing or or having a a very narrow perspective. So when all of these things happen, there is a surge of hormones, and those hormones affect the heart, and the heart becomes weak. So that is actually a very uh, striking example of how the neurohormonal pathways are the, you know, the intermediary system between the mind and the body. Great. Thank you for that. And that kind of leads me into, you know, a large section in your book about the bliss model. And, uh, you know, your book is broken up into a couple of different parts where you give the bliss prescription. And then you have wonderful exercises uh, for people to try out on their own at home, a lot of different uh, meditations that you have for people to kind of work this into their daily lives. So can you explain for our listeners what your bliss model is? Yeah, absolutely. So the the bliss uh, prescription or the bliss model um, has various steps in it, and it works in a very specific way. It works on the agni or this digestive fire by changing our lifestyle, changing our diet, changing uh, you know. Um, things based on the circadian rhythm, changing our lifestyle based on the circadian rhythm, waking up at a certain time, going to bed at a certain time, and why those things affect the neurohormonal pathways. And um, and then it works on the, so there are those physical things, you know, there are the uh, prescriptions for the physical body, and then there are prescriptions for the subtle body. So that's when we work on the breath, uh, and that's how the meditations work. And th- and then there is a whole chapter on decluttering, where you know we work on decluttering not just our physical space, but also time and relationships and the mind. And um, and that is one thing that I spend a lot of time. Uh, on in my program because that's where 
people really start to see a whole big change, especially if they've already been doing the lifestyle and the meditation. And uh, finally, once we have uh, some semblance of inner silence, that's when we work on the body. And that's when the magic begins to happen, where the body is no longer going to be a binding kind of an entity, but uh, one that actually becomes a gateway to freedom. And you had mentioned in your book, too, that kind of being on a, a regimented schedule and letting your body kind of eat at certain times, and you had mentioned in your book, too, that the best time to exercise is actually between, I think it was 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. in the morning, and uh, different times to eat the breakfast, and, and you know, those just seemed like very simple tips that if somebody just shifted their exercise routine and the way that they eat their meals, the times that they eat their meals, and the amount that they ate for each meal, but that seems like that would significantly help the Agni. Oh, my gosh, yes. And that, if, you know, a lot of times I, that's what I tell patients. I'm like, okay, you don't need to do anything complicated. Just do this. Wake up before 6 every day. Go to bed by 10 every day. And, you know, eat at the same time every day. And so, you know, doing specific things at specific times, and suddenly people are feeling better, their symptoms have gone away, they can't understand it. And it all has to do with regulating our neurohormonal pathways. You know, if they are erratic, things are erratic, our lives are erratic and chaotic. When they are stable and they're firing at the same time in a very stable fashion, that's when we can actually see what we need to work on. If we are constantly all over the place, we can't even understand what's going on with our bodies, right? And so we need like that order in, in the body so that you know, we can fine-tune, go into specific areas and work on those things. Yeah, when I was, uh, you know, reading throughout the book and then when I got to that part about, you know, the exercise and how things can come into balance and things that are out of balance, I was thinking about my own body and some inflammation that I have and some joints and, you know, some muscles. And then I was thinking and looking at my work schedule. I'm like, oh, okay, well, when do I eat? Oh, my God, I have horrible eating patterns. I have always yeah. trained myself to not be a, very much of a morning person. Like, I like to wake up more around 9 or 10 o'clock, and I would always say, yeah. oh, gosh, I'm not the person to exercise in the morning. I'd be more of the person that would like to exercise around 6 p.m., 7 p.m. at night. And, uh, you yeah. know, reading how that can cause a lot of uh, stress on the energy in the body, um, you know, it was just everything was just starting to make sense to me. <laughs> I was reading your book and then looking about how many hours I work, when I'm eating, when I'm not eating, do I even have a regimented schedule, when do I exercise. Everything I do is pretty much the opposite of what you've written in this book. And uh, things aren't working as well as I would like them to be. So um, when I read the book, just the simplicity of that, I was like, wow, okay, what if I did change the hours that I went into work? And, you know, what if I did not work through my evening dinner? And, you know, I always envied those early morning people that get up and go to the gym at 5 a.m. And I'm like, how do they do that? How do they have that energy? But um, it's down <laughs> to me, and I, I felt pretty uh, excited about that, you know, if you can make those small, simple changes, that the body itself will come into better alignment. Yeah, and, you know, this is what all my Ayurvedic teachers say, is um, 
once you kind of treat your body to and 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 the thing is you know all of these effects we when we are teenagers we can do all kinds of things and not really feel it right and it, right. and then we continue in our 20s we don't really feel it in 30s maybe a little bit but it's really in the 40s that it really starts hitting us because it's an accumulated thing over decades of what we've been doing with our bodies and our bodies are so forgiving because we do this you know you you kind of get back into a regimented schedule you start treating the body more kindly and then once we get into that pattern and the agni becomes stronger and more balanced you can you know you can follow this maybe about 80% of the time the remaining 20% if you fall off the wagon back okay the body will take care of it because it's capable of doing that it's just this constant abuse that you know gets it out of balance over decades so um that's why you know when i when i prescribe this to my patients and they do this for a few months like you know 3 4 months they're like wow i can't i can't believe i feel so much better i'm sleeping better i feel better my joint pains have gone away i i don't know why <laughs> so now you know why <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I really got a lot out of this book and you also have a wonderful website. I mean, you have a great meditation course on there. People can actually take a gut quiz to see what possibly could be um out of balance. You also have a newsletter. I signed up for everything. I've taken your quizzes. I've signed up for the meditation course this morning. Um so and the website is just wonderful. So I was wondering if you could just let our listeners know where they can find more information about you and if they're interested in your uh meditation course and the gut quiz. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for the kind words. My website is uh, kavitamd.com, k a v i t h a m d.com. And uh as you said, you know, there is a free meditation course. It's a seven module course. And uh there's this uh you know, the gut quiz. It's called the blissful gut quiz actually because uh based on uh you know, the quiz there you get basically a um 50 page ebook with uh, specific prescriptions for your particular agni issues so um it's it's not like one size fits all Right, and that's another thing that you mentioned and I really liked in the book too. I think you were giving a story and an example about one of your clients that you barely could recognize cuz I think he lost a bunch of weight and he yeah. was on a plant-based diet, but you also, you know, recognized too that not all bodies are the same and not all bodies will respond to the same type of nutritional diet than others. So, like you said, it's like everybody is very unique in in their own way. Oh absolutely and and this is why you know I'm not a big fan of you know things like that um that seem to be you know fads which is okay I, everybody should be doing this no everybody should not be doing that because you know for instance um raw foods you know the raw food diet and this i know from my own personal experience before i got into ayurveda is um you know i was eating a lot of salads every single day and i couldn't understand why i was not feeling good and that's that's because you know the, there was a lot of vata in me and that's the worst thing you can eat for vata aggravation you know these cold uh, salads that are not cooked and um and so it one size doesn't really fit all and um 
and I had a woman in my program who had the same issue. She was eating salads every single day, twice a day, and couldn't understand why she didn't feel good and went on my program and just switched, did one thing, switched from uh, salads to soups, cooked foods. And all of a sudden, six months later, she had lost 20 pounds, doing nothing else. And so you see the, the power of understanding that one thing isn't right for everybody is, is very unique to Ayurveda, which I absolutely treasure and love about it. I did too. I did too. And I have one last question for you before we go. Um, and yeah. it's just my, out of my own curiosity, because I know, you know, people have their, their passion and their purpose here, but of, out of all of the organs, out of all of the different types of medicine that you could study, why were you drawn to the heart? I don't know. You know, the, the physiology of the circulatory system was fascinating to me from day one. And uh, day one of medical school, I just knew this is it, you know. I just love uh, the whole circulatory biology, and it, it involves everything else, you know, and it's very simple. The, the physiology of the heart is very simple, and that's why I like it so much. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. I really enjoyed your book. And um, I wanted to just mention to the listeners, I, one of the things that I really liked about it, after each chapter, you have a really nice summary. Um, so if people didn't have time to read the full chapter but wanted to kind of get cliff notes, you have a summary there um, after each. And then I really loved in uh, the other part, the part two and the exercises that you just break this book down very nicely. It, you, like, it's almost like you don't have to read it from beginning to end. You can skip around to a lot of different um, parts and then go to the exercises, which could be really helpful. So I found it to be a really nice book, uh, personally, that I enjoyed. Probably one of the books I enjoyed reading the most. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's, that's uh, wonderful to hear. Very gratifying. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, good luck with all the work that you're doing in the world, and I'm sure that our listeners will uh, enjoy this interview. And again, the book is The Heart of Wellness, Bridging Western and Eastern Medicine to Transform Your Relationships with Habits, Lifestyle, and Health. Thanks, Dr. Kavita. Thank you. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!